chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and as has sort of become the, uh, the uh, modus operandi here on Sunday evenings, we're not going to actually get to this, <laughs> this passage until the end of our time this evening. But again, we're continuing on with our look at Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And we've been spending a significant amount of time the last several months looking at the kingly office. And we're finishing up our look this evening at the king and his cross. Last week, we discussed how the cross of Christ was something that was instilled into the work of the coming king all the way back in Genesis 3.15, that, that the command given to Adam and Eve was to exercise dominion over the sea of the earth, over the fowl of the air, over every creeping thing that creeped upon the earth. And when that first creeping thing came before Adam and Eve, the devil, the serpent, came before him. Uh, he sought to beguile them with his lies. And instead of exercising dominion over the serpent, Adam and Eve fell and fell into sin and they ended up plunging humanity into sin. And as a result, they abdicated that kingly role that they had been made for. But even in their sin, God's grace was abundant in the promise he made of the one who would come, the seed of the woman, who would come and vanquish, conquer, exercise dominion over the serpent. Although the serpent would bruise the heel of the woman's seed, the woman's seed would bruise or crush the head of the serpent. And so from the very outset, what we recognized is that while Christ is coming as a victorious king, he will be bruised for our iniquities. And so we saw how the prophets discussed this, and we looked at Isaiah in particular and his servant songs, and we saw particularly in Isaiah 53 how the suffering of Christ is described there in such detail, and yet there is a message of victory that he sees and is satisfied, that he prolongs his day, that the will of the Lord prospers in his hand. And then we ended looking at Psalm 22, a passage that in such intricate detail describes the crucifixion of Christ, and yet there, as it ends, it describes how kingship belongs to the Lord, and he will rule over the nations. And so there is a clear connection in the Old Testament between the prophecies of the coming Messiah, the king, the victor, and his suffering. Well, this evening I'd like us to consider now and look at the gospel accounts and then Peter's summation of the king's work as he suffered on the cross. And so what we're going to begin as we look in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, is sort of Peter taking all of this and packaging it up for us, putting a bow on it, and come bringing us to a conclusion about who Jesus of Nazareth is. And so look with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 22 Peter, as he is, he's described this amazing scene where the apostles, uh, now known, being known as apostles, those that were his disciples, came out on Solomon's portico. They, they were speaking in tongues that they had not previously known. 
And so there's a question, what is going on here? And Peter describes this as a fulfillment, one of many fulfillments of the coming day of the Lord. And after he's made that to be the case, in verse 21, actually, he brings up this point that on that day, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so he continues, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on this his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so here's the conclusion of all this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit and this sermon that Peter preached so powerfully. Lord, the message that we just read your Spirit used to bring 3,000 souls to Christ. Father, today use that same message. Use the message of Christ our King to draw us closer to You, to know You more, to bow the knee to the only true ruler of this universe. Father, work through Your Word this evening, we pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So stick a pen in Acts chapter 2. 
So we're going to end with that. But I, I wanted us to look at this evening how Jesus anticipated, endured, and then rose victorious over the cross. And how particularly his enduring, his suffering, his work on the cross shows that he is this king that was spoken of all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus anticipated the cross. Now it's important for us to recognize that we must never think that, the, that Christ was a, a victim on the cross. I'm sorry, I wrote that wrong. We must never think that Christ was a victim on the cross. This is a, a common way of looking at what happened on the cross. Modern scholars today look at it and they, they see an inspiring story of martyrdom when Christ goes to the cross. And there are certainly aspects of that that are in view here, but we have to recognize that Christ did not come to the earth, come to earth, and then was haphazardly a victim of injustice. Rather, throughout his ministry, he anticipated the cross. He came with the cross as his primary purpose. This was the entire focus of his ministry. He came not as he will come in his second advent to take care of sin and to judge it, but rather he came in his first advent to make an atonement for sin. Now, we see that this suffering was announced, first of all, to Mary. We have the wonderful story of when they take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to be dedicated. And there's this man there, a man who feared the Lord and was waiting for the consolation of Israel. His name was Simeon. And Simeon saw Jesus coming and he rejoiced that the Lord had fulfilled his promise that one day he would see the Lord's Christ. And he spoke to Mary and Joseph about this child. And it says in Luke chapter 2, 33 through 35, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. In fact, that very statement itself speaks to the exercise of a level of authority and dominion. What you do with Jesus, how you respond to Jesus, how you treat the king will determine how you rise or fall in this life. And he says that this one will come for a sign that is opposed. And then he speaks of this, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Mary was told that there would be an intense pain that would come. And the scriptures describe this for us. They say very clearly that Mary was there. We're going to look at that a little bit later. Mary is there at the cross when Jesus dies. And her own pain was clear as the sword of Christ's suffering pierced through her own heart. And so from the very get-go, from the moment he came into the earth, and from the moment that he was dedicated at the temple, it was 
predicted that he would suffer. We see that John the Baptist alludes to this very sacrificial work of Christ. In John chapter 1, John sees Jesus coming to him and notice who he says he is. Behold the what? Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this was a clear indication, a pointing to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth, this one coming to John to be baptized, was a lamb of sacrifice. That he would have to lay down his life, that he would be like a lamb before its shearers is dumb. He would be led away to slaughter so that he could take away the sins of the world. This Passover lamb that John speaks of was a lamb that had to be killed. In fact, if we look at the Passover story, there the angel of death was going to come. The, the Lord himself was going to come and descend upon Israel. And he was going to kill the firstborn of every child. But of the houses that had the blood of the lamb spread on the doorpost and on the lentils, he would pass over, not visiting them with death. And so it is true about Christ that those who are under the blood that he sheds, death has no sting. Grave, the grave has no victory. But yet this comes through his sacrifice. We see that particularly Jesus himself alludes to his cross work throughout his ministry. We see this towards the end of his public ministry, and particularly in the things that he tells his disciples. In Matthew chapter 16, he says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he, notice, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised now it's important to note what jesus is saying here he says that he must go he is not passive in this action but rather he is intentional about it he is heading to jerusalem so that he would die it's no accident he's not a hapless victim he's doing this as the mission given to him as king. Now it's interesting to see how Peter, the leader of the disciples, responds to this. Jesus says this in front of all the disciples, and you, I can see this scene now. You hear all the disciples, and, and Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, can I talk to you over here? You know, I would, I would never contradict you in front of the other disciples. And then notice what he says here. He took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, Peter has a way of sticking his foot in his mouth, but this is, this is beyond. He's rebuking Christ. And he says to him, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turns and rebukes Peter, and he's very blunt with Peter. Get behind me, what? Satan. You are are a hindrance to me. 
You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Nothing, not even his closest disciples, would dissuade Christ from completing the work that he had come to do, to complete as king. Just a, a quick note here. Jesus will then go on later on in this passage and he will call us all to realize that if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And, and as we recognize that the path that we are to lead as Christians on this earth involves suffering, how do we endure that? How do we not become hindered? And the answer is what Jesus says to Peter here. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And how important it is for us to set our minds on the right things. Now, this is just the first of two other times, that, uh, first of three other, three times total, two more times that Jesus in the synoptics would make predictions. He does it again in Matthew chapter 17 and then again in Matthew chapter 20. And all three synoptic gospel authors record these three predictions by Christ that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. Now, there, we... I don't want to get too much in the weeds or make too much about this, but when something is repeated three times in Scripture, it speaks of the absolute importance of it. Case in point, how many times do the angels in Isaiah chapter 6 call God holy? Not once, not twice, three times. And so we have every gospel writer, Every synoptic gospel writer record these three times that Jesus says, I must go and suffer and die and raise again. Jesus is not a victim. He is marching towards the cross as a conquering king. And so we must always keep that in mind when we consider the cross work of Christ but there is perhaps no other passage that clearly describes what Jesus is doing than John chapter 10. John chapter 10 tells us of the good shepherd. And Jesus describes what the good shepherd is and what he does. And, and one of the key things that sets, sets Christ apart as a good shepherd is that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so he says in John 10, 17 through 18, for this reason, the father loves me. Because I lay down my life. That I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the declaration of a king. He is stating that the cross is his intentional work. He is stating that no one is taking his life from him. He is no victim. He lays it down, and he does it freely, of his own accord, of his own will. And he is the one as king who has authority to lay it down. And also as king has authority 
to take it up again. It's actually interesting, and we'll see this in a little bit, when the scribes and Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. They take him to Pilate after beating him and flogging him and trying him and spitting on his face and and treating him cruelly and having a kangaroo court. But you know what they can't do? They can't kill him. It's not within their authority because they recognize that a higher ruler The Romans are the only ones that have that authority. Now, we're going to see in just a little bit, even the Roman procurator in Jerusalem, he, the top official in Palestine, even he doesn't have the authority in this moment. And so Christ here makes it abundantly clear that he is laying down his life. We see that Jesus intentionally escapes dangerous situations because his time to suffer had not come. We see this in John 6, 39, John 7, 30, and John 8, 20. And John 7, 30, I think, encapsulates it for us. So they were seeking to arrest him. But what? notice what happened. No one laid a hand on him. Why? His hour had not yet come. Jesus, even in his public ministry, even when he would claim the things that were absolutely true, that would infuriate the crowds and they would seek to kill him, they still couldn't touch him because it wasn't they that had the authority to take his life. Only he could lay it down at the perfect time that the Father had intended. There are other allusions to this reality in Christ's ministry, such as Mary anointing Jesus with costly perfume and and his statement uh, that this anointing is done so that everywhere where the gospel is preached, her name would be spoken. And she is before actually he is dead, preparing his body for death. This anoint this This ointment that was used was likely an ointment that would be used to embalm bodies. But here she pours this very expensive ointment out while Christ is alive, alluding to the fact that his death was soon to come. He tells his disciples that they cannot come where he is going. And the disciples in their foolishness say, Oh no, Lord, I will follow you everywhere. Peter, I will follow you everywhere, Lord. And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're talking about, Peter. And then he tells him, you will one day follow me. But not in the way that you think. Then we find that as Christ is teaching his disciples what's going to happen. And they're dense. (laughs) You know, you ever read something in the Bible and it just sort of bounces off your head and never sinks in? And then finally, at one day, you're like, oh, now I get it. And it really grips you. I feel like that's what happened with the disciples. Because Jesus told them, not once, not twice, but three times, that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die. And they still, even up until the Last Supper, they act like, what's going on here? They seem surprised by what's happening. But 
as Jesus is speaking his farewell words to them, he gives them this wonderful encouragement in John chapter 14. He says that he's going to leave his disciples with what? Peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And then notice what he tells them. Look, there's going to be some very troubling things. And what is, what is his charge to the disciples? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, and don't be afraid. Now, this is, this is a wonderfully gracious word of Christ to his disciples because in just hours, one of their own, one of their trusted ones, the one who held the money, is going to come and kiss Christ on the cheek and betray him with a kiss. The soldiers are going to take him. They're going to take him and there's going to be a kangaroo court. The people that they as children had likely looked up to as young Jewish boys, those, these rabbis and these Pharisees and these Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the, the religious elite are going to turn on the one that they had been following and they're going to see a heathen king nail him to a cross. And that's going to trouble their hearts. They've spent three and a half years of their lives following him. They love him. Deeply and immensely love him. And so Jesus says, don't have troubled hearts. He says, you've heard me say to you that I am going away. And then he gives them this wonderful hope. And I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. And notice what he says here. And here we see two kings pitted in battle. Why is he not going to talk much more with the disciples? Because the ruler of this world is coming. This should send chills up your spine. There's a confrontation between the devil and and Christ that is on the horizon. Who wins? Christ. And notice what he says before it even happens. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Listen, Jesus here is making abundantly clear that what he is going to in the cross is a way for him to demonstrate that he is king and that no one, not even the most powerful, dark person in this world has a claim on him. And he will demonstrate that as he endures the cross.
This anticipation that he spoke of throughout his ministry, it shows to be, it's shown to be true in his enduring of the cross. Yet through it all, he is displaying that he was the one exercising dominion even as he suffered. What we see is that first of all, he willingly faced the cross despite the internal anguish it brought him. You ever have something on the horizon that's going to come and you just feel so sick in your gut about it? Like, this is just going to be an awful thing I have to go through. I remember when I was a kid, um, I was a procrastinator. I guess I still am a procrastinator to some extent. I guess we're all procrastinators, but I was a really bad procrastinator when I was a kid. I would have research papers that would be due the one day, and I'd tell my mom at like 5.30 at night, I need to go to the library and study and write this paper. And I remember that I would always feel ill because I'm like going to have to tell my mom I, I didn't do this, and she was going to be upset with me. And not only that, my dad was going to be even more upset with me. I remember that there would be times where I had done something wrong and my mom would say, go to your room and wait until your father comes home. And boy, that would, I'd be like, oh, I'd have this, this trouble within me. There are much more serious things that we face in our lives, much more consequential things that come across our path that cause us to be troubled within but can you imagine the trouble that Jesus felt as he faced the cross not only did he know the physical suffering that he was going to face but in that moment in the garden as he is sweating great drops of blood the weight of the sin of a world of sinners is placed on him and he knows he knows in that moment that he's going to look up to the Father and he's going to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so it's no wonder that in Jesus' ministry, he says that his soul is troubled. As he considers this task that he has come to do, his humanity wrenches underneath what's going to happen. The term that's used here for troubled is used elsewhere in the scripture to describe a fomenting sea, a bubbling up sea, a disturbance. And so what does Jesus do with that trouble? Notice what he says. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Notice the intentionality here. Notice that Christ is coming despite the internal anguish. He's coming as king. This is why I'm here. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. But then Jesus pipes in and he says, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. 
And then notice what he says is about to happen. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler, the king of this world be what? Cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Do you see the dominion focus of what Christ is doing here? He is doing what Adam and Eve failed to do in the garden. He is exercising dominion over the ruler of this world. Casting him out and then lifting himself up on the cross, which as he is lifted up there, paradoxically suffering, he is also showing that he is king and he draws all the world to him. So he willingly faces the cross. We see that he demonstrates his kingly authority while in the garden. And we're not going to spend the time to read through this entire passage in Matthew chapter 26. But just some things that you're aware. It's a very familiar passage. We're aware of the things that are going here. He comes before the Father and he prays. First of all, he tells the disciples that his soul is exceedingly troubled again. And he says, even unto death. And he charges the disciples. He asks them, wait here and pray. And then he goes off a little bit further himself. The other gospel writers tell us that he is there sweating great drops of blood. And he prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But that's not the end of the prayer, is it? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. One of the things that was essential of Israel's kings was that they would submit to the Lord. And so here we see Jesus, the King, submitting to Christ, or submitting to the Lord here. Later on in that passage, as he prays this and, and he finishes the prayer, he goes back, he sees the disciples, and what are they doing? Sleeping. He says, can you not watch with me one hour? He goes and prays again. And then he comes and wakes the disciples again and says, don't worry about praying. Look, my betrayer comes. And he sees Judas, the one who held the money, the one who was trusted by all the other disciples. And he says to Judas, he gives him permission, do what you have come to do. Even in that detail, Christ is exercising dominion. Judas comes and kisses him and the soldiers grab a hold of him. And Peter, again, 
showing his zeal. He was serious when he said, Lord, I'll never let this be. He pulls out his sword and he cuts off the high priest servant's ear, Malchus. And, and Jesus picks up the ear that's been severed and places it back on his head and heals him. And then he looks at Peter. And it's almost like, what are you doing? You think that sword is going to save you? And then he points to who he is. He points to the fact that he is the Lord of hosts, the king of angel armies. Because he, he says, don't you know that I could pray to the Father? And I could call down 12 legions of angels. A legion was roughly around 6,000 soldiers. So you have, I don't know, maybe, let's say, let's be really generous to the Roman, or to, to, the, to the Jewish leader soldiers at this point, the temple guard, and say that there were 50 of them. 50 of these physical beings or 72,000 spiritual beings. Who's going to win that battle? And Jesus says, I, I have the right. I'm the king. I can call them down. Listen, that sword that you pulled out is nothing. If you want to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. But yet... Does Christ call those legions down? No. He asked the crowds gathered to arrest him. And then he asked them a question, which even more so demonstrates his authority. He says, I was with you in the synagogue. I was with you in the day. You had every opportunity to arrest me, but you didn't. And so even in this moment, Christ is demonstrating that he is no victim, that he is the one that is truly in control of everything that's happening. We see that he demonstrates this kingly authority in his trials. He's taken from the garden. He's taken before the high priest and questioned. They ask him about what he had taught. They bring up witnesses and they can't agree on what they were saying and so there's this kangaroo of a court that's going on and they keep asking Jesus question after question after question and Jesus stands silent and so the high priest finally steps forward and as Jesus is remaining silent he says I adjure you by the living God tell us if you are the Christ the son of God and it's at this point that Jesus responds. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you that from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You know what he tells him? I'm your king. He describes the kingly authority that he has. And so Jesus recognizes that and makes it clear. The Jews then turn him over 
to Pilate. And we know that Pilate takes him, questions Christ about his kingship. And Jesus says, as Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What audacity standing before the creator of the universe and saying, don't you know who I am? And notice what Jesus says. Here we have that conflict of authorities. And Jesus says, you have no authority unless it had been granted, given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And so, as Jesus demonstrates this kingly authority in his trials, he's told Pilate that his kingdom, he is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. We finally see that he demonstrates that kingly authority as he suffers on the cross. There's much to discuss here. We know of Pilate's inscription above the cross. This is the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate did that to mock him. He did it to make a statement. This is what the Jewish king gets from the Roman government. He did it to magnify himself and to magnify Rome. But the paradox here is that for all eternity, the word of God recounts the fact that Jesus was declared to be the king of the Jews. We know that in this moment, Simeon's prophecy is fulfilled as Jesus is there at the cross. And there are only one disciple and his mother there. John, the beloved disciple, and Mary. And as Jesus suffers on that cross, he looks down and sees his mother who is in incredible anguish. Imagine seeing your son tortured to that point and then dying such a cruel death. And Jesus tenderly makes provision for her. Woman, behold your son. And then turning to John, son, behold your mother. And John takes Mary into his household and cares for her. As Jesus is crucified there on the cross, as he feels the weight of sin, as he fears, as he feels and, and knows that the Father is turning away from him, he cries out the quotation of Psalm 22 Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even that quotation is a declaration of his kingship for who wrote those words in the psalm? David, the what? King. As Jesus suffers on the cross, he endures the mocking. He points to his authority to grant salvation to the thief that repents and trusts in him. And boldly proclaims, today you will be with me in paradise. They take 
a sponge and fill it with bitter, sour, sour wine and point it, push, place it to his lips. As he had cried out, I thirst. And then we see that his death did not come because his body gave out. Did not come because the soldiers had mercilessly beaten him and mocked him and brought him to a point of death. Jesus had the authority and when it was time, he laid down his life. The last words of Christ recorded in John before he dies are, It is finished. The Greek word they take to lestai is used, it comes from the accounting world to mean paid in full. But in the general sense, it has the idea of accomplishing completely a task. Jesus, in these words, speaks as king. I have done it. It is finished. And then he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. He dies. Christ, in saying it is finished, is not a cry of despair, nor is it the pleading of a victim. It is a proclamation of victory. The king has exercised dominion. It's the shout of a king who has triumphed over his enemy. And he lays down his life. Even in the timing of his death, Christ shows his sovereignty because he dies just before the soldiers come and begin to break the bones of the soldiers so that they can no longer pull themselves up to breathe. And when they come to Christ, they see that he was already dead. So they didn't break his bones so that scripture would be fulfilled and none of his bones would be broken. Do you see how through all this, Jesus is no victim. He's a victorious king. He's exercising dominion in every detail. And the final detail is that he rose victorious over the cross. The final declaration of Christ's kingship is seen in his resurrection. And that brings us here with three minutes left to look at Acts chapter 2. Hey, we're not streaming, so I can just keep going, right? <laughs> Peter is the one who, after Christ has ascended into heaven, he's the one who takes this message and unpacks it for the crowds in Jerusalem. And he sums everything that has happened, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and draws it to a conclusion for the crowds. He says that Peter, Peter's final conclusion here is that the cross and the resurrection demonstrate an incontrovertible fact. Jesus of Nazareth is King and Christ. He says 
And in our passage, it begins by saying how Jesus was a man attested by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. And we discussed how all of those things point to his authority over sin, his authority over the earth, his authority as creator. All of his works show us that he is king. And these crowds in Jerusalem, which hated him, and cried out to Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, through unlawless actions, are actually accomplishing the eternal decree of God. Notice what he says in verse 23. This Jesus, who is delivered up, not by you. You have to realize what Peter is saying here. Jesus did not die because you killed him. He died because the definite plan and foreknowledge of God determined it. But you are responsible for what you've done. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then he says, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death. And then he makes this statement, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Listen, in those words, we find great hope as God's people who are united to Christ in faith. If it was not possible for death to hold Christ, and we are Christ, we are in him by faith, then is it possible for death to hold us? No! Such hope there. And why is that? Because Jesus is king. He quotes David and speaks of how Jesus is not merely a good teacher. He's not merely a miracle worker. But rather, Jesus is the eternal king of his people. He is David's Lord. He's the fulfillment of all the promises made to David that God had made to him. And so Peter's final conclusion is seen in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, and he uses two words, both Lord and Christ, King and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified. I think it's important to note the context in which this comes and the, and the verse that Peter quotes. He quotes Psalm 2. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until what? I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter comes and to those crowds who... Days ago, cried out in the streets, crucify him, crucify him. He now confronts them with the reality that they have made themselves the enemy of the king. And so we see the response of the crowds in verse 42. Or I'm sorry, in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. 
there was an overwhelming sense that they had rebelled against the king. What is the penalty for treason against a king? Death. And if you read Psalm 2, the descriptions of what Christ will do when he comes and makes his enemy his footstool are terrifying. Like he will take them and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. And so they cry out to the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And that's where Peter shows us who the victorious king is. He is a saving king. It says, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is amazing here is that our king is a king who looks to all those who those who are responsible for placing him on the cross. He looks at us and he says, if you repent, if you believe, I will save you. I will forgive that rebellion. I'll forgive that sin. Not only is he a saving king, but then he's a giving king. He says that those who do this, what do they receive? The Holy Spirit. That this crowd that had stood in defiance of the King of kings and Lord of lords, if they were to bow the knee willingly and come before Christ, repenting and believing in him, showing that in baptism, that Christ would give unto them the very spirit that he himself had on earth. And this saving king and giving king is a promise-keeping king. Look at verse 39. For the promise. What is the promise here? I really think he's referring back to what he said of Joel. That it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. That promise is for you and for your children and, who are, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, Jesus came not to just be king of Israel, but to be king of those who are afar off, those whom he calls to be his people. And so he goes on and says in verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And what happens? Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Which shows us the fourth thing about our king. He is a transforming king. 
These who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Throngs of people, thousands of people that day came to see Christ as their king. They came to bow the knee before him and they found in him a savior with salvation rich and free. Jesus is king. He comes to save us, to give the Spirit to us, to keep His promises, and to transform us from this crooked generation. And through it all, He shows that He is King as He suffers on the cross. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for such a wondrous salvation. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for our King. May we live our lives following Him fully and completely. Take your word. Lord, those that hear this message, whether it be here today, whether it be on the internet at some point, Father, those who have not saved themselves from the crookedness of this generation by repenting and trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, Lord, may King Jesus make himself real to them now. And may we all seek to honor Christ as our King. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen.